Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm your host, James Nurse, a general paediatrician who clearly has too much time on his hands. Every fortnight, I invite you to join me as I speak to authors about their work to try and shed a little bit more light on the work published in the journal. We've over 50 episodes to date, including our new short-form podcast, The Shortcast, so be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, but not before listening to this latest episode on paediatric dentistry and IMD. Hello there. Now, I'm not sure that the pathway to any podcast has been as complicated as the history of this one. In January 2021, I tweeted about a paper written by Dr. Hurst and Dr. Chakrapani about the impact of inherited metabolic diseases on dentition, and our audience were clearly interested. However, because it had appeared in another journal, I couldn't discuss it in a podcast. So I spoke with my editor-in-chief, or my then-editor-in-chief, Professor Moreva, and she invited Dr. Hurst to write a review for the JIMD. And so here we are, barely a year later, And the incredible Dr. Hurst has written the wonderful Inborn Errors of Metabolism and Their Impact in Paediatric Dentistry, and I finally get to do my podcast. Lorna and Anna Pam, thank you for writing this paper, and thank you for joining me for the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you again for inviting us, James. Now, I don't want to speak ill of dentists, but I imagine that for many of them, one of the attractions of the career is not having to think about metabolic pathways. So why do dentists need to know about inherited metabolic disease? Well, absolutely. And I would say that dentists are generally less aware of some of the intricacies and complexities of managing a specific patient population. But actually, patients with inherited metabolic disease can really present with quite a unique and unparalleled challenge for dentists uh, by virtue of sort of their dietary metabolic regimes, which are quite frequently karyogenic. And I think that generally, dentists are very comfortable in educating patients about reducing their sugar intake to prevent dental caries. And so when we're faced with a patient on an emergency regime or a limited fasting tolerance, then actually it can be quite challenging. And I think dentists can become quite easily apprehensive and feel quite ill-equipped to direct and help this cohort of patients. And for me, I guess also on the other side of that spectrum, patients with inherited metabolic disease can really present with quite a diverse range of characteristic craniofacial and oral features. So things like orofacial clefts, dental anomalies, and intrinsic dental staining. And many of these really have the sort of propensity to complicate dental treatment. Well, I suppose if I pick you up on your first point then, you talked about karyogenic treatments. Conditions such as PKU is probably one of the most common metabolic disorders in the UK. It's also a good sort of paradigm for dietary and, and supplement management. These patients are typically going to attend a normal dentist surgery. What are the issues for dentists to be aware of in disorders like this? I think that's another really good point. And I think dentists are more likely to encounter phenylketonuria patients and other sort of more rarer diseases. And I guess the real key points here are that some of these patients are on metabolic formulas and they are often quite high in sugar. So they're about 15% carbohydrates that's sugar and they can be quite erosive. So I guess one of the real key take-home messages for dentists in managing a patient with PKU or other similar patients is that when they're prescribed this metabolic regime, then dentists need to understand that it's imperative for that child's metabolic health and it should really be considered as a non-modifiable risk factor for dental caries. And so I guess with that in mind, the focus therefore really should be on other strategies to mitigate the risk of dental caries. So things like fluoride varnish, where that's appropriate, or hygiene instruction and fissure sealants. 
And I guess another really important point is that dentists, we frequently recommend cheese as sort of like a tooth friendly snack. And for patients with PKU, we need to be aware that that's just not something we can suggest in this cohort. So being educated about that too. And is it purely the sugar within the, the feeds that's a problem? I mean, for me, I can only comment on sort of the carbohydrates, like sugar. That's the thing that I care about as a dentist. Uh, I think that that's correct. From the dental point of view, that is that is the most crucial one because I don't think the amino acids per se would cause a huge problem. I mean, like Lorna rightly said, you know, these patients have to be on these supplements on a regular basis, you know, several times a day. So your dental hygiene becomes a, a challenge for many of these these children. And the other thing you talked about in your introduction was emergency regimens and uh, children receiving carbohydrates. So that's a big group of children with metabolic disease, isn't it? So those are the disorders that are patients have propensity to metabolic decompensation. So uh, I suppose the more common ones would be like the fat oxidation defects. MCAT deficiency is one of the most uh, common conditions we encounter in metabolic medicine. Now, these children don't regularly require supplements, but when they're ill, when they have any any sort of illness, they do need the emergency feed, which is which is basically carbohydrate, essentially high, you know, one, of, one of the high carbohydrate drinks given every two to three hours, really. So you, know, you can imagine the, the impact on, uh, on dentition and, you know, this guy on for day two days three days at a time there are other more severe fat oxidation defects and other other disorders with more limited fasting tolerance such as the glycogen storage diseases where uh, even when children are well they cannot tolerate prolonged fasts and they have to be on some form of supplementation again primarily carbohydrate based supplementation uh, several times a day uh, and that's pretty much throughout their lives so yeah, they they probably are far more prone to the kind of carogenic potential that that Donna talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that these probably are the biggest challenge for dentists. So, like you say, it's a huge range of patients. This is going to be effective. And I think in order to understand why emergency metabolic regimes are not really conducive to oral health, it's really important that actually we understand how dental caries develop. So, I guess the important message is that the oral cavity is kind of in a state of physiological equilibrium where we get a balance between remineralization and demineralization of dental enamel. And the more frequently we're consuming sugars, the more that balance is kind of tipped towards that demineralization and risk of dental decay. So when these children are having to have these formulas multiple times a day, which as we've discussed is super important for their general health, they're basically in a state of you know, demineralization and increased risk of dental decay. But actually, there are things that they, we can do and things that we can advise these patients. So things like rinsing their mouth out with water having after having one of these supplements is going to make a difference. And things like not brushing their teeth, you know, 20 minutes afterwards, so we don't brush in the acids, inverted commas. And I guess also like dentists should be seeing these patients as high caries risk. And we really should be sort of reviewing them on a maybe a three to six month basis as per kind of nice guidelines in that respect. The other thing that you've alluded to in, in the article also, Lorna, is, is patients who are on uh, tube feeding. Because again, you know, the most extreme sort of forms of fasting intolerance in these patients has to be treated with some form of tube feeding, either gastrostomy and gastric tube feeding. And uh, I think that's quite a potential for dental problems as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So thank you for raising that. And I think a lot of people have the impression that if they're not eating orally, they haven't got a risk to their dental health. And it's just not true because actually these patients are much more at risk of getting things like calculus, so tartar buildup. And we often find that these children 
they become quite orally adverse. So if they're very used to having everything by a peg or an NG tube, for example, then actually if they do have any dental treatment, they're not used to sort of having anything in their mouth and it can be quite challenging and distressing for them. So I guess the importance from our point of view is really getting in that good oral hygiene regime from an early age and bringing these children to the dentist so they don't become too scared um, because it's quite sad to see that happen and it can be prevented. That's an important message for parents, obviously, that mm-hmm. just because your child isn't receiving anything by mouth doesn't mean they're not going to get dental problems. Exactly. I'd really like to highlight that. And uh, there is so much that you've covered in this paper. It is wonderful. It's such a comprehensive paper. It's brilliant to read. But the, one of the other conditions I wanted to discuss with you and that you single out is around complex molecule degradation. I suppose I want to ask why these are in, of interest, but perhaps we could ask Anna Pam just to briefly summarise for the dentist listening, what on earth would be my complex molecule degradation? Well, the, these are the, the sort of complex molecules that make up uh, the cell structure, really, the glycoproteins and uh, those, those kind of things. So disorders like the mucopolysaccharidosis, for example, and so some of the rare glycogen storage diseases or what we call as congenital disorders of glycosylation, where the, the metabolism of structural molecules is impaired. So those are the ones which are associated typically with some form of abnormal storage in uh, various body tissues and either the impact of physical storage can can be detrimental to tissue health or there are often inflammatory pathways that are triggered that 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 lead to degeneration of tissues of, around the body and, and, and undoubtedly the teeth are are almost invariably affected in these conditions for me it's a really quite a broad category and i think i could just talk forever about this so i try and summarize why this is an important part in the paper and i guess there are several reasons why disorders of complex molecule degradation have been discussed in more depth And so I think we find in dentistry that certain diagnoses such as mucopolysaccharidosis and the glycogen storage disorders, they can present with quite characteristic craniofacial features, which are relevant to pediatric dentists, but also to oral and maxillofacial surgeons and orthodontists. So for example, approximately 70% of patients with phospholipomutase 1 deficiency will have a cleft palate or bifidubular. So these patients can have quite a high treatment burden over the years and they have quite complex MDT kind of needs. And I guess another group is patients with MPS. They tend to have quite complex orthodontic and orthognathic needs. So for example, they tend to quite frequently have an anterior open bite due to either an increased lower anterior face height or condylar hyperplasia, so kind of skeletal factors. And this can really require sort of a joint orthognathic and orthodontic approach to sort of obtain a good occlusion. On the other sort of end of the spectrum, I think that we have quite a full range of dental anomalies in these patients. So particularly supernumerary teeth, which are kind of extra teeth that develop in addition to the normal teeth that you'd expect. Enamel defects and also toroidontism, which is kind of like an enlargement of the dental nerve or dental pulp of the tooth. And all of these are quite complex to manage in certain cases. And I think also the very final thing about this group of patients is I'd like to highlight dentists to the management of patients with glycogen storage disorder 1B, where it has got a big impact because these patients can have neutrophil abnormalities. So we tend to find quite a severe gingivitis or even neutropenic ulcers in the mouth, which can be quite painful and can even impede or nutrition, which we've discussed kind of the importance of these patients being on these metabolic regimes, and they can't really be avoiding eating at all. And also with that, we get the thrombocytopenia, which evidently has implications for all surgical, you know, operative dentistry. So I think for me, there's just a huge range of things that we could see, and it sort of encompassed quite a lot of things for dentists to consider. So that's why I singled them out in the paper. 
And obviously you've covered a number of those in, in more detail in the paper. So it's definitely something that needs to be looked at, especially if you suddenly see that on a referral letter. Um, alongside those concerns about anatomical abnormalities, as you mentioned there, some um, hematological abnormalities and these karyogenic treatments that we insist on putting patients on, <laughs> there are still more issues as well, aren't there? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, so I guess another one that we find is intrinsic dental staining, a little bit uh, rarer, but we find this in patients with alcaptonuria and sort of congenital erythropoietic porphyria. Mm -hmm. And this can be quite challenging for dentists to manage too. So intrinsic dental staining, sort of staining of the tooth tissues um, from the inside, I guess, is quite difficult to manage because it doesn't really respond to sort of more conservative measures such as the external bleaching and the microabrasion. And we often find that it can have quite a significant psychological impact on some of these children. It's, it's difficult for them, which really is further potentiated by definitive management, such as, you know, resin bonded composite veneers, porcelain veneers, not being suitable for a child until they're 18 years of age, which can be distressing to manage that in those years whilst they're waiting for for that kind of treatment. I know we've, we've talked about Lashnayans in our kind of email correspondence. Did you want to comment on it? Yeah, no, I can comment on it for sure. I think it's an important one too. Um, these patients, they often present with quite severe self-mutilation and it can involve oral cavity. So we see lacerations, ulcers, et cetera, in the mouth. And I guess there's quite a big disparity amongst sort of dental clinicians how to manage this. Different treatment modalities have been proposed, so they kind of range from the non-invasive things such as the gloves on the hand to a vast array of removable intraoral appliances to act as a habit breaker. But there are also more invasive treatment modalities that certainly some clinicians do employ, so things like dental extractions or even orthognathic surgery to create an anterior open bite. I would highlight it is a degree of controversy around this, um, particularly in relation to these irreversible treatments. And I guess this is something that has to be sort of considered on a case-by-case -case basis on a big MDT kind of environment before going down anything irreversible, really. It's probably my comment on that situation because it is a bit controversial. Yeah, I think it's, it's right that these are taken on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, looking back to our sort of where we started, um, obviously the consequence of some of what is being done is going to be dental surgery and extractions for some patients with dental disease that obviously brings a new set of problems doesn't it well absolutely i mean i'll answer from a dental perspective um and i think that as dentists we're generally quite lucky because we can do a lot of treatments under local anesthetic even on very young children and we also have things like pharmacological techniques and psychological techniques that we can employ but sometimes it's not enough for that particular child. And we then have to think about other methods to manage it, things like anesthetic, which of course does have its risks associated with it, particularly in this cohort of patients. Yeah, I think a lot of these children do require dental procedures. And, you know, what we try and do is tie it in with something else. So they're having another procedure, say a gastrostomy or some, some sort of examination under anesthesia for the years. Then we, um, yeah, we try and get the dental procedures done at the same time. And of course, it's it's also important that many of these conditions have multi-system disease really associated with, you know, cardiac and respiratory abnormalities. So sometimes these patients require quite elaborate uh, pre-anesthetic assessment from, from specialists, anesthetists uh, before. So, so these kind of procedures, however small, they have to be planned properly and in advance. And, you know, we try and get together as many specialties as possible 
uh, to contribute to the patient's assessment and if required, uh, to take the procedures under one anaesthetic. I mean, obviously, in these cases where you're going to anaesthesia, you want to have a, a specialist team of anaesthetists who are very confident around the, the child's metabolic issues. Um, we don't want this paper to be intimidating. We want it to be informative and empowering for dentists to feel able to support these families that might attend with some of these diagnoses. Obviously, some of these problems should come under specialist services. But what would you say to the dentist encountering these children in the community? Yeah, we do want to increase community dentists' confidence in assessing and providing care for these patients because they absolutely can do. And I would say that the community dentist has quite a fundamental role in sort of preventive care and managing dental disease early, which is really important because infection is that sort of potent catabolic stressor. And so I would really encourage dentists to liaise with the patient's metabolic team if they're unsure how to give dietary advice or if they need guidance about any preoperative measures. And we've talked about prevention a lot just because it is so important. So I guess my main advice for community dentists would be to treat most patients with inherited metabolic disease as a high risk for dental caries and subsequently provide regular dental recalls, provide fluoride varnish application when that's appropriate or hygiene instruction on fissure sealants and alert them to a toolkit called Delivering Better Oral Health, which sort of sets out the guidelines for preventive care amongst patients. I think we rely on our dental colleagues. But like Laura said, I think it's very important that every patient however complex, does have some contact with the community dental services because of day-to-day management. That is extremely important, really, and can't, can't emphasize that enough. That's perfect, and I hope that's a really informative thing. It is a wonderful paper. Lorna, I really can't thank you enough for you know just humoring me to allow me to, to put this episode of the podcast out. I'm re- always keen to try and capture a whole new community of, of clinicians who, uh, who are interested in IMD. If you would like to read this paper, then please click the link in the podcast description or why not find it within the Wiley Online Library app. All that remains is me to thank Lorna and Anna Pam for your time today. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.